0: This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Thank you so much, Hillary, for uh, coming on the podcast. I know it's like a pretty terrible time to do it now with, with your health issue. And I hope (laughs) things are going to be okay. Oh,
1: thank you, Lisa. That's so kind of you. I am, I've been looking forward to this conversation Mm -hmm. for so long that I am, I feel myself delighted, my spirits lifted (laughs) and also, um, my voice, which is regularly quiet will probably be even a little quieter today.
0: (laughs) Mm Yeah. For people who don't know of you, you are a returning guest on Spark My Muse, Mm -hmm. and it's just wonderful to have you back to speak about your beautiful book
1: that is just as
0: amazing as I thought it would be. Oh, wow. It's called The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for writing this. This is one of those books that I have, as a lot of people do struggled with embodiment and and this really as as well as some of the other embodiment books like the body keeps the score and things Mm -hmm. like that have been so eye-opening and your story in here too is i think people will find just a lot of kinship with it so thank you so much i'm sure it was very difficult to write about some of the car accident things and trauma in your own life too Wow. Oh, thank you for for noticing that and naming that. It was, mm-hmm. well, one. thank you for
1: reading it and for your mm-hmm. kindness. I am so grateful to hear that it has been been such medicine for you mm-hmm. as I've hoped it would be for other people in this way that we are learning in this season mm-hmm. culturally in this mm-hmm. moment to reconnect to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so amazing to me to become aware of how I was I was experiencing that too, in the writing process. It was kind of a gift of the book writing to return me to my body in ways that are were hard for me based on the things that I was writing about trauma and pain and whatnot. So um, thank you for naming that. and it it has been helpful for me too. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah, process of learning as you write, I think oh, yeah, is, yeah, definitely. One of the benefits really of writing, but also incredibly, uh, tumultuous at, at times, too. Right. And I, I love to
1: name that, too, because I think it's easy for us to hear someone talk about a book they've written or read someone's work and think that they're the expert in it. Mm-hmm. And really, like I'm on a journey mm-hmm. with everybody else to continually come back to my body in a world that asks me to leave and with experiences and sensations that ask me to leave. Mm-hmm. So I am right there along with you, reader, and with you, Lisa, to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be in the process of coming home to myself.
0: Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with Hillary, she is a licensed therapist, a PhD, an award-winning researcher, podcast host, and an adjunct professor. And the book does center on embodiment, which on page 12 is explained as the experience of being in a body in a social context. And it's really part of feeling alive and it can also include feeling safe and at home in one's body. And if you've had trauma, that can be actually quite difficult. But mm-hmm. there is this difference between a positive mental representation and our body and our personhood. So for people who aren't really aware of what we mean, or this seems like a foreign idea, could mm-hmm. you describe the difference between sort of a concept of self or positive Mental representation and personhood.
1: Right. Are you? I want to make sure that I'm getting at the question clearly, mm-hmm. but this is about um, body image versus embodiment or yeah. experiencing the self as a body instead of just a body that we carry around.
0: Yeah, just kind, kind of, of put us in a context for understanding embodiment as opposed to other ideas mm. of the self or of the mind or personhood, because there is also this. We can get into it later about uh-huh. objectification and how that brings us out of our body too, but that right. can come later. Okay, great. Thanks for clarifying. Mm-hmm. I think that for many of
1: us, our experience of being a self is a disembodied cognitive one. We yes. think, therefore we are, right? We we have a sense of control and power over the body, through identifying ourselves primarily as a mind, as a thinking being. And these are not ideas that are new to you or to me. Mm -hmm. They're ideas that have been handed down culturally based on different philosophies and religious traditions and trauma survival responses. Mm -hmm. And it has given us this over-identification with the mind, that the Mm -hmm. self is the mind in a way that kind of bifurcates our experience of being human. It takes us into the thinking realm and out of the experiencing and the sensing realm, and the reason why that's a problem is that one, it's just kind of factually untrue. When we when we look at what's going on in the brain body system, we see that there is actually no distinction between the thinking mind and the experiencing body. That there, the the illusion in the separation between the two has now been disproved. Mm-hmm. But the second piece is that it. It's a way to reduce the experience of being human that actually takes us apart from each other, too. Mm. When we have these schisms in ourselves, we are more likely to schism other experiences that are meant to be interconnected. So self and other, human and the earth Right now, right? Mm-hmm. All of the the ways that interrelationship is actually our natural orientation. But when we see separateness or we see the mind as superior to the body, mm-hmm. it actually ripples out into the way that we treat the earth and the way that we treat each other mm-hmm. and the way that we try to heal, or the way that we get frustrated that we can't heal. Mm-hmm. So those are you know, those are two of the the problems with this. But then I think the the maybe the ripple effects of that, these secondary waves of the impact of seeing ourselves in a disembodied way is we we live in an image saturated culture. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to connect to our bodies, but we see our bodies primarily from the outside. We see our bodies primarily as these objects. And mm-hmm. the objects can be evaluated positively or negatively. We can like how we look, we can be pleased that other people like how we look. Mm-hmm. But even if we have a positive body image. Many of us still think of ourselves as not our bodies. Mm. So to be able to say I am my body takes it a step further from I like how my body looks to reconnect us to our bodies, but often in doing that we start to bump up against some of the reasons why it's hard to be a body, mm. like maybe our body has been a place that's been unsafe. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to move into the mind and to build a, like a kind relationship with our image, but that doesn't really quite get us all the way to this, what I'm trying to describe and what many people who've come before me has tried to describe as the experience of being a body, the experience of being in connection to ourselves in a robust, attuned, loving, and healing way.
0: Mm, That's so beautifully said. Um, With part of your book, you talk about possession language. I I love this, um, what you accentuate here. You say, having a body or being a body and, and being a self. And like you mentioned just recently, the body as a subject and you say the disembodiment is part of a fragmentation of self, but it's also a, a cultural pathology. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing to underscore because we are really kind of swimming like fish swimming in this cultural pathology that we begin to objectify our own selves and see ourselves as as the subject like that and and that's a pathology that that separates us from ourselves and from each other mm-hmm. but also from i think being image bearers of god and so we're very out of order and and i think that's part of this what you talk about this language of being a floating head <laughs> disassociating mm-hmm. and not really seeing ourselves as as whole creatures and then it's further accentuated with, with trauma or, you know, stressful experiences where we're not actually feeling ourselves as a body. We we might think we have a body instead of thinking we are one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think the flip side of that too, just because we're, you know, we're here talking about
1: it, is that sometimes before we disconnect from our bodies, we had the experience of being a body but it was a very, very unsafe one. Mm. Like it felt loud and scary and out of mm. control. And like there was this sensation that was unmanageable. Mm. And that's, that's where it gets really tricky is that sometimes these are not just ideas that were handed down, but because of our experience, we have a felt reality of our body being an unsafe place to be. Mm. But it's important when we step back to see that that's not because our body has done anything wrong or we're bad, Mm -hmm. but it's actually a very good and natural response to really awful things happening to us mm. but we scapegoat our body we mm. we disconnect from our body we see our body as the thing or the problem instead of seeing what happened to us as the problem and our body being the thing the something the being that's telling the truth
0: mm. there's a really interesting portion here and i think this is maybe the um the watershed time to to be investigating this sort of thing in new ways about chronic pain and trauma mm the Greek for trauma is wound. And I I love that you bring that out. And you speak about the physician that speaks in the book called The Body Bears the Burden, that this trauma changes the circuitry of the brain associated with unresolved trauma is Mm -hmm. is actually changing our brain circuitry. And then we can have this residual chronic pain. And I, I don't know that people actually realize that but how mm-hmm. true that is i know that's true in my own life i know that's true from you because you said it in the book and it's really poignant and powerful to realize that there's a lot of things that are residual that that are not necessarily online in our memory mm-hmm. even but they're right. they're lived out in the body
1: gosh that is such a complicated piece of being human. I mean, if there was a sound bite that I could offer to every one of the patients that I see, it would be among other things, like you're good and mm. you can heal. And I mean, all of those mm. really important things. The psychoeducational piece that most of us are missing is that just because we can't remember mm. the trauma doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm. And just because we can't remember a single trauma doesn't mean that there weren't a hundred micro traumas or mm. small tree traumas that got stored up in our body that are actually accumulating in the form of pain or our anxiety or our depression. Mm -hmm. But so many of us feel like, okay, even if we have the courage to go back and look at our childhoods or look at the experiences that were painful, it doesn't mean that we're going to find something. And that can be so discouraging because we Mm -hmm. desperately at times want to know that there's a reason for why we feel so awful. And sometimes the reasons were hundreds of reasons and sometimes oh. the reasons happened before we started consolidating autobiographical memory and so oh. we just have these symptoms
0: hmm.
1: and we can't point to anything and that's that can often for people be a reinforcement well, okay well nothing happened so therefore I am broken mm-hmm. instead of what we know kind of when with the expertise that is available in my field to oh. say nobody has those symptoms without things happening to them oh wow
0: yeah, it's uh, that's the one thing I learned in uh, the body keeps a score that was that the body doesn't have chronological memory, so you can't you know it trauma is in the present right and so it doesn't you know fade into the distance like our actual chronological memory does and so when you don't have language yet and you can't express it and, and trauma isn't is languageless. Mm-hmm. I thought wow, there's so many things that can happen before you develop language. And my son who's autistic, really couldn't develop language till he was six and there were many traumas mm-hmm. um, that were micro and 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 macro that are that much harder when you can't tell anybody you're hurting or, or something like that. And none of that is online for him in his chronological memory, but it certainly plays out. In his, uh, in other kinds of ways that come up as anxiety and obsessiveness and things like that. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's
1: important for me to add to the stream of dialogue we're having right now to say the body is, yes, meant to signal to us through these specific markers that we associate mm-hmm. with trauma. Like there's some unfinished business. It's important that you go back and do some healing, but. What's really important that I think isn't coming out in the cultural dialogue in the same way that, you know, look, my body is this trauma storage machine (laughs) is like I'm hearing lots of that is that our body is also the place where wisdom exists and our body is constantly saying, I'm ready to heal. I'm looking for ways to heal Mm. and it's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we need to add that to flesh out the conversation, not just the one you and I are having, but the broader cultural conversation, which is that it. It is so much more to be a body than just a trauma bag. Yeah, right. <laughs> to, Thank God you know, for that. Yeah. Trauma in the tissues. There's right. wisdom, there's vibrancy, there's joy, there's healing, there's interconnectedness, there's mm. resilience, there's ancestral knowing. I mean, there is pointers to this loving source that is always asking us mm. to see our goodness. I mean, that that is just as much in the body. I would say, if not more than the trauma memories. Mm-hmm. But the trauma memories are very loud and I think we're having a very important cultural moment where we are talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. So we we need to also be thoughtful about adding in that there is more to being a body mm-hmm. than just our pathology.
0: Yeah, I would like to, in a few minutes, go to speak about the body and oppression and oppression of groups and how that gets stored as well. But mm-hmm. first, I'm hoping to go to page 61 and just have you explain a little bit about this staircase of stress response, because there sure. was the word fawn. I I wasn't sure how that related, but I, I'm just going to describe what's in this picture. And, and for anybody listening, there is absolutely no way we can even cover like 2% of what's in this book. So <laughs> you just have to get it. But the first stair step is, is the safety stage. It's rest, play, growth, create, connect. It's the good stuff. And then when I I guess stress starts to begin, or maybe trauma starts to begin, you hit a social engagement step. And I guess these are not necessarily in any kind of order. They can, you can bounce around to these. You
1: can bounce around based on past experience, but we are wired to take them in sequence. Mm. So depending on what's happened before and if it's worked or if it's created more danger, you can actually have a kind of severing of that approach. because you're again your brain and your body system are wired to keep you healthy and alive and safe. And if reaching out in some way or fighting back or fleeing has created more more damage for you, yeah. then that suddenly becomes an unsafe option for your nervous system to take. So it is possible uh, for you to jump from rest and play to shut down or rest uh, and play over social engagement into this kind of activation response. But if we were to look at the kind of the textbook version of being human, we would be meant to take them in sequence.
0: Right. So the stair steps are safety, social engagement, mobilization, and shutting down. Under social engagement is things like set a boundary, ask for help, seek support, do those social engagement type of things. Then mobilizations where things kind of get to that fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And I don't know what fawn is. So could you uh, describe that?
1: Yeah. It can be the way that we try to, um, placate our needs. It can be the way that we maybe even align with the person who's perpetrating harm against us to minimize the distress that we're experiencing to Mm -hmm. essentially signal to them that we are not a threat. Um, and that it's, they don't need to continue to, um, yeah, they don't need to continue to see us as dangerous and thus perhaps by over-identifying with them or flattering or appeasing or um, kind of being, the word that comes to mind is to be obsequious, right? To this like over and a kind of excessive um, adoration that those ways of being in relationship with the threat Uh are a way to protect ourselves
0: as well. Oh, interesting. Like a kind of acquiescence to, to make an, to make an ally instead of um, fighting or fleeing, those aren't good options. So then you you do the other, like, get closer.
1: Yeah, exactly, too. And I think many of us have had an experience where someone, maybe not in a physiological way, but in an interpersonal way, has threatened Mm -hmm. us and they have more power over us. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a boss or it's Mm -hmm. a parent and it becomes easier for us to do the thing that they want Mm -hmm. than it is to say hey, that doesn't feel good for me because mm-hmm. the risk to standing up, using our voice, articulating ourselves, fighting back, whatever it is, that that actually creates more unsafety for okay. us because what if we lose our job or mm-hmm. what if you know, we alienate our parent, then where will we sleep at night?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the fawning can be this way of staying in relationship mm-hmm. with someone who's hurting us mm-hmm. to ultimately protect our other needs.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's really a new insight I did not know about, but it, it, I see it now that it's mentioned. I'm like, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Okay. Uh Um, And then the shutting down. and, And this is really interesting too, because this is disassociation, flop, give up. And this is kind of when all the other ones fail, there's a sort of shutdown that happens in order to preserve ourselves and, this is I think you I think that you mentioned correct me if I'm wrong that depression can also set in in this kind of shutdown phase yes. too, this going to bed and I've I've done this too where, wow, I feel tired. I think I'll sleep all day. Kind mm-hmm. of. Um, just it's just too much. Right. And you begin to sort of have a shutdown. But it's a it's a complete, at least in my experience, it's a complete bodily shutdown, like muscles right. and digestion and, and everything. And would you could you go into describing shutdown, how it looks in different instances a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And because we're all individuals, there's mm-hmm. many different ways that it could look, but some of them can be total and extreme from mm-hmm. moving to, um, you know, an, an altered state where we're not coding memory, where mm. we are unconscious, where there is actually mm. kind of a complete physiological shutdown without any sense mm-hmm. of retaining of an awareness of I, of what's happening around us, mm-hmm. maybe even splitting off at times and creating different neural loops mm-hmm. that allow us to live in fantasy, but our body is disengaged, which allows us to kind of stay alive, mm-hmm. even though we're not in the moment where the trauma is happening, mm-hmm. all the way to this kind of persistent depression that mm-hmm. feels like You know, it's hard to find motivation and it's really hard to speak up about our needs and it's hard to feed ourselves or we're constantly eating to try to get, you know, get more energy in a body that feels tired or we're. You know, the the spectrum from the normative depressed affect all the way to unconsciousness mm. would constitute kind of varying degrees of the shutdown. Mm. But that's that's a really important thing to acknowledge because there is this is kind of an emerging theory. We we had breakthroughs in our understanding of depression when we could see, mm. oh, it's not moral failure. It's not mm. just that a person doesn't want to Something enough, or they're lazy. Mm-hmm. And here's a biological basis for it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, understanding that there is um kind of neurobiological correlates or mm-hmm. precursors to depression that gave us insights into the fact that medication would work. And we mm-hmm. get we got to depathologize a person by saying mm-hmm. they have a chemical imbalance mm-hmm. and it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. But what's, what has been a kind of problem with that paradigm or that method of treatment is that it doesn't, it doesn't explore where did the chemical imbalance come from? Mm. Did someone just wake up and have one one day? Or was there something that happened that made their nervous system and neuroanatomical structures and neurotransmitter function change so that they became depressed as opposed to seeing that as kind of organic in nature? Mm. So what it can do to recognize this model of shutting down is to see that there were things that happened before the shutdown Mm. and consequently, then we can figure out how to treat those things. And there are ways that our body was screaming out to say, Mm. it's too much, it's too much, it's too much before the shutdown happened. Mm. And as a result, we can direct our treatment there, Mm. which means that we might have, I I shouldn't say that, kind of... um, casually we we have more ways of treating depression than mm-hmm. simply trying to recorrect the chemical imbalance mm-hmm. to figure out how we can move a person out of what happened before the shutdown occurred
0: it's amazing too because you know without understanding the conditions in which someone moves to this stage you do hear like well get a job or think positive thoughts so you get you you have people trying to perhaps remedy you not Mm -hmm. understanding you know what got you there and it it could be it could be an accumulation over a few decades of of some pretty difficult things and then you get to this stage and and um You might be told just terrible advice about think positively or something, and there's just no way you'll be able to think your way out of it.
1: Right. Oh, my goodness. And I think of the number of people, and including my own experience, where that has felt Mm -hmm. so harmful and it feels like another thing to do when our Mm -hmm. body is already shut down and we're having a hard time accessing any resource to be told there's more you need to do mm-hmm. in order to get well can leave us feeling like we're trapped in this double bind of, again, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I either have to do something or I'm, I'm again, stuck in what's happening, but I, I can't do the thing, so I am stuck. And then there's another layer of shame and mm-hmm. another layer of isolation, and it can feel this, like this cyclical kind of and reinforcing pattern of getting mm-hmm. further and further away mm-hmm. from what we actually need to heal just because we're trying to protect ourselves from the shame of being told those things anymore. I mean, on a very simple level, it is when our, when our body is shutting down in a chronic way, not just in a single instant, when our body is shutting down, it's saying it is too risky to be engaged. Mm. It's too scary. When I'm engaged, it's too much for me. I'm going to feel all the things that made me shut down originally. Mm. So unknowingly, we tell people do more, do more without realizing that that could very easily put them back into the state that caused the shutdown in the first place.
0: Yeah. Well, this kind of dovetails well into the um, chapter seven, the body and oppression, when bodies are political and when we talk about collective trauma and that oppression is a form of trauma when sometimes groups are stigmatized, whether it's uh, because of disabilities, gender, sexuality, different minorities, and how people appear in the world. Entire groups can can fit into these um, kind of categories that, that uh, get stigmatized on top of, like for having more mental illness issues, perhaps, or having these things that would come along with the oppression in the first place, then kind of being held to a different standard. Well you know, these people have these problems, instead of understanding that it would have come from somewhere. Right. um, Maybe you can talk just a little bit about what you mean when you say collective trauma and oppression as a form of trauma. Well, it's so important
1: to recognize that our medical definitions of trauma necessitate the, or for ne- of medical definitions of trauma associated with a PTSD diagnosis, necessitate mm. that there was a single life-threatening event mm. or the experience of witnessing someone else's life be threatened or harmed seriously. Mm. And what that what that doesn't account for then is when you exist in a culture that is consistently threatening your well-being, mm. but you can't point to a single incident. Think of the what I described earlier about childhood trauma, that yeah. there is thing after thing after thing from being shut out from opportunities to being silenced when you're trying to talk about your pain to being told that your pain isn't real or that you know you should get over it. Yeah. And then the, the harm or the threat of physical violence when you're just moving through the world because of the way that your body looks or moves or is read by other people. Yeah. So all of these things create this, I shouldn't even say microcosm, this macrocosm in which Danger is an ever-present reality, relational Mm -hmm. danger, physical danger. Mm -hmm. But because we can't necessarily say for lots of people in those group groups, you know, I experienced a threat of violence that there isn't uh, the qualifications to meet a PTSD diagnosis. But what research has shown us is that these groups of people, various groups of people have all of the symptoms of PTSD, yeah. but they don't have that single categorical thing like the, you know, the the car accident or the surviving the earthquake or whatever, whatever it is that we, we want to codify as trauma. Mm. So, the systems that we're in, based on how they arrange body hierarchies, based on how they say which bodies are valuable oh. or not valuable, which bodies deserve to be protected, which bodies are conferred with the most power, it does create this landscape where people, based on how their body shows up, like I said, looks, moves, is red. Mm-hmm. Are ascribed certain degrees of power and then as a result this kind of cultural reenacting of all of these paradigms creates an experience for a person often when they're in dominant culture of of unsafety Mm -hmm. which is why it's so important for people regardless of what the specific identity is is that they have a chance to be with other people who share that identity Mm -hmm. to be in spaces where there is a felt understanding of the reality mm-hmm. of the danger and the threat because often one of the the things that goes along with dominant culture is that if you are not experiencing that form of oppression or marginalization you don't even know that it exists or yeah, you're absolutely. not yeah. you're not aware of how it's impacting and how you are impacting other people mm-hmm. so that there's an insidious nature to it mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean i think that that's um that it's something that we can't become aware of. Mm-hmm. But I think we're in the process, at least I hope we are, of becoming more aware of how we sit at different points of intersection of identity to realize like, okay, mm-hmm. even though this one experience of pain or oppression is really hard for me, I have missed some of these others. Or mm-hmm. just because, you know, I don't feel um, – silenced or marginalized in my life doesn't mean that other people don't. And I Mm -hmm. I imagine that more than ever, we are in a waking up to that, Mm -hmm. but there is so much further that we need to go to make communities safe Mm -hmm. for people who have historically been silenced, erased, whose bodies have been made to be be bad or less valuable. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. I think sometimes in in dominant culture, they might experience inconvenience and confer that that is what other people are experiencing inconvenience they're actually experiencing trauma and bodily that is so different and over the years and generations you know you, it it comes out in illnesses too chronic pain but illnesses and and this is why when the when covid came out and they're saying oh these these certain populations are experiencing more death as if it's as if it's just written into their dna and not written into their histories and abuses mm. and it, it's it, to me it was super obvious but to i it just seemed like there was this big disconnect and of course the body has been holding the trauma and it's going to come out physically you know right. in 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 bodily vulnerabilities <laughs> right. so i think that that's kind of It's begin. People are beginning to see it a little bit, but I think it it is extremely hard for dominant um, culture to really understand bodily what we mean. The statistics don't seem to be showing it to to them.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, what comes to mind as you say this is how important it is to be skillful at doing interpersonal repair, Mm. because we may not know how we have hurt someone, but we don't that doesn't negate our, our responsibility to repair what's happened. And I it come, what comes to mind again is I'm, I'm a new parent and I talk mm-hmm. to my mom about this, my parents about this frequently, but mm-hmm. how, you know, how do we take responsibility as parents for the harm that we've caused, even though we were trying to do our best, or even though we didn't yeah. know it. And many of us have never had a person who has more power than us say to us, tell me how I hurt you. Can you tell me how I can do better? Can you tell me what that was like for you? I'm so sorry. I take that on. I take the responsibility of that. That was not your job Mm -hmm. to have to experience such and such. It was my job to protect you and I didn't. Mm -hmm. And when we haven't been modeled that in our family Mm -hmm. systems, Mm -hmm. and we haven't been modeled that by people who have more power over us. When we are the person with more social power as it's Mm -hmm. constructed, Mm -hmm. we don't have the skills to say, wow. thank you for telling me. I didn't know. Can you tell me more? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go work on that. Mm -hmm. And how did that hurt you? And Mm -hmm. I, you know, that really is on me. And it takes a, it takes a whole person to be able to see and to see the way that we've hurt someone else unknowingly and recognize that it's something we can take responsibility for without it um, decreasing our value as a person. But I think we have to have experiences of having that model to us to learn how. And just most of us just haven't.
0: Oh, I totally agree. And I would just like if people could start just being curious about people who don't, you know, don't look like you, just being curious about their stories of, of harm is a step in the right direction. But also, of course we're going to hurt people because we're not in their situation and in their bodies we can assume that hurt harm has happened and so that mm-hmm. having that attitude of i probably have done harmful things and and haven't even known it and I, and i am sorry and you can tell me what you need to tell me and i'm going to try you know did d- the attitude of we're going to i need you to help me as we work on this together but of course it's not on you it's not your right. burden to do it yeah. <laughs> but but i want to be the kind of person who's always learning and and being careful of right. you, um, it's. This
1: is where it kind of feeds back into some of the earlier chapters in the book, like the mm-hmm. chapter about emotion. Yeah that it becomes very hard to stay in those conversations, one, Mm -hmm. if we haven't been modeled how to do it, but two, if we become dysregulated and we don't even know it because we are disconnected from our body. And so this is a way that when someone is courageous enough to say, you hurt me, the way that we further perpetrate harm in relationships is we get so upset that they then have to take care of us Mm -hmm. or we make it about us or we inflict more harm. And so I really think that there's something significant about individual healing Mm -hmm. in an embodied affective way being connected to our interpersonal and collective healing because we cannot show up for each other if somebody is telling us that they're hurting and then we just make it about us
0: right yeah yeah it shows that we're dysregulated in that moment because it it it's still triggering right Mm -hmm. yeah wow Well, I'm gonna tell you that, I think I told you this online, but in chapter eight, pleasure and enjoyment, the sensual and sexual body, I read that first because I wanted to read the juicy parts. (laughs) Right, right, appreciate that, Um, yeah. (laughs) Couldn't help myself. So on page 90, you talk about five circles of sexuality, and those five are power and sexualization, sensuality, health and sexual reproduction, intimacy, and sexual identity and a full understanding of these aspects of ourselves is what can help us understand this side of ourselves and i i think this is really a nice full way of understanding this part that is um, i'll just speak for myself i have a difficult relationship with my body in this way with with pleasure and my body that's not connected to somebody else's happiness Mm -hmm. um and i think that this is you know i was raised in a conservative christian upbringing and you, you speak to this very specifically in purity culture and even the sexual object objectification that happens in religious circles when you're supposed to stay sexually pure and in this unintended consequence happens where you actually get objectified instead and made into a thing um there's a lot in here on this but i guess if we were to talk about the nugget of what you hope people understand in this really fantastic chapter um that sexuality is not at odds with our spirituality, but it's uh-huh. an important part. And what do you hope that people get out of this chapter that the real nugget? Yeah, I think, I mean, you just articulated it so
1: well that our sexuality and our spirituality might actually be interdependent. And what I mean by sexuality is not how you pleasure somebody else's body. Mm-hmm and in, and not even necessarily how you express your kind of your sexual behavior that we have reduced sexuality mm-hmm. to a series of acts often acts that are about our engagement with another person's body mm-hmm. and it reduces down the complexity of sexuality as this really vibrant life energy that is mm-hmm. calling us into experiencing joy and connection and goodness and a felt sense of um, delight in our bodies and Mm -hmm. in this unfolding of our humanity. Mm -hmm. So we we don't need to see these two things as fragmented anymore, but Mm -hmm. it requires a redefining of what our sexuality is. Because I think someone could very easily say, you know, your sexuality and your spirituality are not Distinct from each other, but it could be a harmful thing if sexuality still meant your um, the way that you please somebody else. And then we can assign kind of moral goodness to you know I've made somebody else's oh. body feel good, and therefore oh. I am sec- I am spiritually um, I'm a better partner, right? I think mm. about some of the narratives in mm. very conservative environments where. In particular, a woman's worth in heterosexual relationships, a woman's worth is defined, spiritual worth, spiritual value, mm-hmm. her sense of goodness on a mm-hmm. spiritual level is defined by her ability to please her male partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. I am, I want to be very clear mm-hmm. right. that sexuality is something so much more than mm. just creating a pleasurable sexual experience for somebody else's body.
0: Right. The. The different dimensions of being a sexual person are also intimacy, and then there's the power component, and right. um, there's the health and reproduction part that sometimes gets sort of co-opted with the the purity stuff too, and right. then and then you don't really understand what's safe for your body or or um, how to prevent pregnancy, and and the other the disease dangers and things like that they get co-opted with the other stuff about you know the do's and the don'ts how how far can you go without doing something impure or something and it does get reduced to you know not a not a beautiful thing but a kind of a straight jacket or something i'm not right. even sure how to describe it you do so well in your book of, oh, of covering all these issues and i'm not even sure how we dip our toes in here but <laughs> but um oh gosh um i guess i would it would be interesting to talk about sexuality and power um that's woven into our sexuality and you you speak here on page 191 uh, it, that this topic concerns both positive and negative effects of power as well as the exchanges of powers such as flirting, consent, abuse, rape, and the giving and receiving of pleasure. Naming The naming of power is one reason this model is so useful because power is conferred socially and this model identifies how sexuality is located within the social political context. And the one reason I wanted to mention that is because I don't think in purity cultural spheres, this power dynamic is, is overlooked and you get sort of rapey kind of cultural thing happening where everything's sort of placed in the, in the heterosexual scope with the male leading uh, the way sort of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I guess, how do you feel that people should, besides reading your book, how should people uh-huh. really <laughs> approach power and sexuality in their relationships. Oh my goodness! I think it's <laughs> so, a too big yeah, of a question, big, way too big. <laughs> big, big question. But I love it, and I think
1: maybe even what I might suggest is let's let's start thinking about the fact that power exists in our sexual relationships, and start mm-hmm. being curious about that. And mm-hmm. I I would want for each of us to ask people in our lives, perhaps people who are who we are in sexual relationships with, like how do you experience? me is having power in this Mm -hmm. dynamic. Now, the tricky piece about that is, uh, is the relationship safe? If it's an abusive relationship, Mm -hmm. it's a very threatening question to ask because a person um, might not be able to give a safe answer or an answer without it feeling like it creates more harm for them. Mm -hmm. But ideally in relationships where we are having honest conversations about our sexuality, our desires, our needs, Mm -hmm. what's working, what's not working, I mean, We start to we we get the opportunity to say, Hey, have have there ever been times when because of how my body is constructed socially, it has created experiences of you feeling silenced or like you don't have power. And how has that happened? How has that played out between us? And Mm -hmm. what would it look like for us to repair those? those wounds, the damage that I've done. But you can imagine that even simply asking that question requires us to have relational dynamics in which we're talking at a deep level about the way that we hurt each other and Mm -hmm. trusting our ability to do repair. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who who have a hard time even doing that. So maybe starting, and this is one of the, you know, the Elements of our, the circle of sexuality is intimacy, which can be a relational, conversational, um, kind of interpersonal pattern of practicing just being close to one another. And I don't even mean physical proximity, but emotional proximity, the ability to really create spaces in the relationship where people can tell the truth to each other in a way that yes, they're taking responsibility for their the impact that the truth telling has on the other person. Cause it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean if I say where we can tell the truth, that we just say whatever we want that mm-hmm. you know, and disregard how it lands for someone. Mm-hmm. But where we are practicing really being close and figuring out what closeness means and building the kind of relationship where it would be possible to say, Hey, how how have I had more power than you? Mm. And how does that impact how you show up and your desire and your your voice as it relates to expressing your needs mm. and your wants?
0: This is a great time to mention that at the end of each chapter, Hillary invites us with two sections some things to think about, and then there's questions to ask, and then some things to try. So there's this pulling of us into our body and learning and reflecting. It's not just, you know, filling our head with the information. Right. This mm-hmm. is the I feel the transformational part. I'm a spiritual formation person, mm-hmm. and so every time I see reflection questions at the end of a chapter, I get all <laughs> giddy yes, and, and happy. And and so the the part about sexuality has plenty of things to think about or to converse about. Uh, in the right kind of situation in a safe situation. And I think that that's, that's where a book can be, you know, it's going to be changing for you in, in different kind of insights and epiphanies, but it could actually change your life when you begin to ask these questions and begin to engage people in relationship in your life that way. And I, I mean, that's, even two chapters of that is worth the price of the book, in my opinion. You know what I mean? It's To me, that's where you really see a deep transformational change. Right.
1: right. I'm so with you. Like, I think one of the things I really want for this book is it not to just become another reason to leave your body because you get yeah. all sorts of ideas about the body yeah. that actually take you away from your body. But if you read a couple chapters or one and did the exercises and practiced feeling into what happens inside of you when you read... You're already getting it. you're getting the point of it. It's not so that I give you the answers or not so that you memorize more data, but so that you know yourself, so that you come into connection with yourself. and that that sometimes happens because we have enough information to tell us. it's okay to go in. It's okay, right? It's, it won't it won't hurt you forever. Mm. But primarily, it's through having new experiences.
0: In the last part of the book, you have an epilogue, a letter to my body. Dear body, I'm sorry, I love you. This is so beautiful, and I'm not going to read any of it, so it's not spoiled for the people reading your book, but I did want to ask you about this embodiment piece that comes into new focus for you as a mom, and ask you, of course, you know, giving birth and having a child, nursing a child, and being a mom and your your body is so involved in that. I think I never felt more female right. as that when I had my two kids. And I just am curious as to what that's been like for you. And it's still unfolding, of course, but I would love to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, there are, there are so many layers to it that I'm still really unpacking. But I think the the fog, the mental fog that comes yes. with being in the breastfeeding postpartum state has really shown me just how much I still over identify with my mind because thinking clearly and vocabulary has been largely inaccessible to me, especially mm-hmm. when I feel very depleted energetically. Mm-hmm. And all I've had is these memories of birth, these memories of the courage that showed mm-hmm. up in my body. Mm-hmm remind me that I can keep going mm-hmm. and that there is goodness here and that life comes from this body in more, in more ways than just birthing, right? So that even if people are not pregnant or not birthing, mm-hmm. that it doesn't mean that you don't also have life coming from your body, but it has mm-hmm. been really helpful for me to see that my body is a place that I can trust, mm-hmm. even when it feels scary to be disconnected from my mind in the way that I have been. Mm-hmm. And I think this really truly profound experience i had of birthing my daughter and you know catching her and doing that in my home and mm. really singing her into the world using my voice and sound mm. and movement it gave me this experiential map kind of like the flip side of trauma that mm. i have this imprint in my senses mm-hmm. Not in the traumatic sense that I, you know, feel afraid and overwhelmed, but in in the sense of I can, I can very quickly go back to the experience of power and agency and movement and sound as these ways to help me get through things that are hard. And I thought, I mean, I did all of this prep work to, to have a birth experience that I felt um, would be safe and empowering mm-hmm. And I thought birth would be the hardest part, but mm. what's interesting is that birth gave me an experience of my strength that has allowed me to do what has since become some of the harder parts the sleep mm. deprivation, the fatigue, yeah. the you know, the getting up in the middle of the night and having to stay to, you know, rock that baby to sleep. So I am so begged to say <laughs> I can keep going. There is resources inside that will allow me to keep going. I know that I am powerful in a way I didn't before. It's imprinted. In me, in a way that just like trauma has no time stamp. it is right there. Wow. As soon as I need to go back to it,
0: so, yeah.
1: that wow. I mean, is helping me. Even today, as we were talking about this interview, I've I've learned to have mastitis, and I'm going to be starting antibiotics, and there's all of this, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that I'm doing. But I I will I will be okay. I'll be okay, and I can care for myself, and my body is strong. And the reason this is, I feel as awful as I do, is because my body knows how to heal itself, and. Mm-hmm. And I can trust that and I have to lean into caring for this incredible being that I am so that I can then be available to care for the other people in mm-hmm. my life who are now dependent on me. So it's, I mean, there's just so many layers. I'm sure I'll be writing more about it in the future as yeah. it becomes clear to me, as I get my words back.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, you sound like you have plenty of words. Oh. To me. <laughs> but I know, I know what it's like to feel diminished in, in yeah. that capacity, definitely. So listeners, the book is called The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. Go to HillaryLMcFry.com to go to Hillary's website. Thank you so much, Hillary, for your work, and I wish you blessing as a mother, and thank you so much for spending your time with us. This has been just such a delight, and I will also wish you a quick health and healing.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Such a delight to be with you today. Thank you for asking such thoughtful and rich questions.